Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. There's so many historic events going on. The war, that's pretty historic. In America, we had the largest gathering of Jews in American history. They, they put it at 290,000, so approximately 300,000 Jews all together in, in Washington, D.C. I was privileged to, to be a part of that. It was really, it was really something. I'll just share some quick highlights from, from that, and we'll talk some Torah a little bit afterwards. A lot of people ask me, well, what, what was it like being part of that, that event? And for me, I never would have used this word, but it was, it was chill. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. There was a, like a, a meme, an Instagram little thing that was sent out by Nikki Haley after the march, which she's, she was commenting on it just as an observer. She said, you know, almost 300,000 people, no one had their face covered. There was no violence and there was no vandalism. And that's remarkable. And I, I think it's also so indicative of who the Jewish people are, that we came together at a time of such urgency where emotions are running so high, and yet you had a mass of people that was behaving themselves like mention. You know, that was such a key word for my parents. And my father would say over and over to us growing up, you have to be a mensch. And when, when all is said and done, you know, sometimes you do better, sometimes you do worse, but the, the, real, the real barometer is, are you a mensch? And just to tell you how, how important that was to my father, my, my father, he should rest in peace, he wrote his own tombstone. And what he put on it was a mensch. A, that's remarkable that he wrote his own tombstone. <laughs> B, it's remarkable that he had this ideal that he tried to live up to. And C, he felt that at the end of his life, he had achieved that ideal. So, so when I say that it was chill, what I mean to say is, even though you had this just this, you know, outpouring, outpouring, historic outpouring of people, there was a, I don't even know what the word is, earnestness, integrity, honesty, menschlichkeit, that's, that's, that, that's the word, that's the word. And then I'll, I'll just go a little bit further with that, because speaker after speaker really tried to rile up the crowd in a good way, and like, bring them home, bring them home. And, and I think every speaker, I think, you know, secretly wanted to get 300,000 people just like, you know, going crazy, basically. And it just never happened. I think on a good Friday night at the Happy Minion, we were probably louder than those 300,000 people. I mean, there, there were people doing it, there were people doing it, but it never went into that crazed mob mentality fervor. And, and I thought that was beautiful. Uh, among the speakers, 
I'll just say some highlights. There was really this beautiful spectrum of people. Van Jones, who's black, a TV commentator, very articulate, very, very interesting guy, stood up there in front of the crowd. He was one of the first speakers and he said, the Jews marched with the blacks by the civil rights marches and you were there for us and I wanna, I wanna make sure that I'm there for you in your time of need. And I know that that's a, a source of pain that there's division between the Jewish community and the black American community. And I know from the Jewish side, we, we want there to be wholeness and peace. And, and I think from our, our point of view, we have everything in common. I don't know if that's shared, but, but certainly from our point of view, we, we feel like brothers and sisters. And so, so to have someone up there sort of voicing that was, was very beautiful. There was a Muslim woman up there with her hair covered, and she was also expressing unity and, and, and that was beautiful. There was a Christian minister, one of the most prominent ones in, 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 in the world, who coming from a, a good place, but it was really such an interesting peek into a community that I'm not familiar with, just preaching fire and brimstone, really, that the Jews are the chosen people, and in just a very amazing way, very supportive way. You had all of the leaders of Congress, and by that I mean you had the Senate Majority Leader, the Senate Minority Leader, the House Majority Leader, and the House Minority Leader, all holding hands, locked arms up in the air. And each one spoke expressing absolute, total, we're 100% behind Israel in, in this. So it was really one group after another group. And it, it, it was really so, so beautiful. It really was. And then Ishai Rebo, if you're familiar with him, one of the top Israeli singers and just beautiful people in the world today, just speaking. And, and also, you know, from what I know, he doesn't know English. And it was just so nice just seeing him just very comfortably just, just talking in Hebrew up there, probably fully aware that 95% of the people didn't understand him. But, you know, it just... It was just natural and it just felt so good just to hear just someone speaking Hebrew, just speaking from his heart up there. So, so that was really something. Before the march, there was a Nate's minion, which means, Nate's means that you time your Shmona Esrei, right? That's the key prayer, morning service. You time your Shmona Esrei that when you begin it, the sun is just breaking through the horizon. So there are people who, like if you're at one of, those, one of those gatherings, they're like very like very exact about it. They know exactly when the sun is going to go up, exactly where they have to be in the order of the prayers by that moment, and they really, they take it very seriously because spiritually speaking, that's, that's considered a great thing to daven Nates. Just to tell you how great, just this is very interesting, really, ideally, a person is davening in a minion that just kind of supercharges your prayers. But it says that if an individual davens at Nate's, so even if you're in your own home, it has the spiritual might of davening in a minion. So it just shows you how special it is to daven at that, that particular time. So there was a Nate's minion at the White House. And I, I, I was part of that. 
And there were, I, I heard this number thrown out, I have no idea of gauging it, but, but that there was approximately 1,000 people there on this Pennsylvania Avenue, which is right, I mean, we were directly in front of the White House. And that, that was really something. And, and especially beautiful was the fact that the, the morning prayer, it was on Rosh Chodesh Kislev, the Shachris prayers was, was led by a Sephardi chazan. The Hallel prayer was led by a chassid with beard and payas. And the Musa prayer was led by a uh, modern Orthodox person. And so just having like the different um, segments of, 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 of the Orthodox world anyway, represented in that way was beautiful. And, and there was a moment because Fardim do Birkas Kahanim during, during that service, they also had two, two, two times where they did it, during Shachris and Musaf. Now I'm a Levi, and it was, I, I've never experienced anything like this before. There was someone with a, a, a big jug of water, like you buy in the supermarket, pouring into those red plastic frat house cups. And the hands, he was pouring frantically, one after another, the hands reaching in were the Levium, and other people were just sticking out their hands. Those were the Kahanim. And so you had this mass washing going on on, on Pennsylvania Avenue that was like totally chaotic, but got the job done. And that was, that was really interesting to take part in. So those are some highlights from the march. You know, sometimes you hear great people say the following, which is, they, they ask them, how did you kind of do this extraordinary thing that you did? I, I've heard this like several times from different people uh, in different, different circumstances. They were like, well, isn't that what you're supposed to do at that moment, right? And everything just felt so natural about that march. Everyone, people came in from all over the country and everything like that, but you didn't hear anyone like really talking about that. It was sort of like, I'm there because where, where else am I supposed to be? Like, right, this, uh, uh, this is where I'm supposed to be right now. So, so there was just this naturalness to it. And, and I think that, God willing, you know, our, our closeness right now is so important. And like I've been saying, it says in the Torah itself, 20 of you will chase away 100, and 100 of you will chase away 10,000. And if you just look at the math there, it's very instructive. This is right in the Torah itself. 20 will chase away 100. That means if 20 are united, you have five times the power. And a hundred of you will chase away 10,000. If a hundred of you are united, you'll have a hundred times the power. And so the closer we are, the more exponential our power becomes. And, and what I would suggest is, is that if we're close now, let's get closer, right? Just get closer and and certainly let's stay close okay so let me let me go further I want to bring up something that I think is 
that I think is really beyond, really, which is kind of another way of looking at the Torah. So we know that Yaakov Avinu has to dress up like Esav in order to get the blessing. And the way most people learn that is that he had to fool his father and therefore he had to dress like Esav. And so people don't think of it in the way that I'm about to present it. My question is, given the fact that God knew that Yaakov is going to get the blessing, God knew that. Why did God make it that Jacob had to dress up like Esav? Why did Yaakov have to be wearing a costume at the time of the blessing? I'm not asking a question in mechanics. Oh, he had to wear it this way in order to trick his father. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking that given the fact that God knew that Yaakov is going to get the blessing, why did God decree that Yaakov had to be wearing a costume at the time of the blessing? And I want to suggest like this, because so many of us are alienated from ourselves. So many of us go around in life wearing a costume. So many of us are one way inside and we're another way outside. And we're afraid to be that person outside that we are inside. And there's such a distance between the two. And so I want to suggest that one of the aspects of Isaac's blessing is that we shouldn't have to be two separate people. That our inside and our outside should be the same. You know, the Talmud says that, by the way. Not, not this interpretation that I'm offering. But it says, who is a realized person? And the way they learn it out is very striking, by the way. They learn it out by the Arna Kodesh, the golden ark which held the tablets of the Torah inside the Beis Amigdash. It said that it was gold on the inside and it was gold on the outside. And so therefore, a realized person, their outside is a reflection of their inside. Just like the ark is gold on the outside and gold on the inside, your outside should reflect your insides. Now, Rabbi Green pointed out something really brilliant because that, that teaching itself works great. But, and that's the end of that teaching, by the way. But listen to this brilliant question that Rabbi Green brings up. If you actually look in the Torah, how to build that ark, it says the following. It's gold on the inside, just like we said, and then it says there is a wooden container holding that gold, and then it's gold on the outside. Now, when you think about that, that's really interesting because that means that it's not just gold on the inside and gold on the outside. There's a barrier in between. And now we're really drilling down in terms of the human condition. That it's not just so simple to express who you are on the inside, on the outside. There's this barrier that exists in between that a person has to overcome. And that barrier, in a very meaningful way, never goes away. Just like it never goes away in the ark. Which means that it's a lifelong pursuit to be the person you are on the outside that you are on the inside that it's a lifetime's work and that it never ends.
You see, when we talk about Esav, what does it mean to dress up like Esav? Well, the Balaturim brings, I saw it in the Balaturim, but it may even be older than that. The Balaturim brings, that's about a thousand years old, that Esav comes from the word Asui, which means made. And everybody knows, it says right in the Torah, that, that Esav was born with like, like, like body hair, basically. Not only that, but the Medrash goes further. It said that he had a beard, front teeth, and molars. So he was really born like as a man. So the idea that Esav means a finished product. And so this is why ideologically, Esav is the enemy of the Jewish people. Because Esav represents the person who at birth considers themselves a finished product. And as we just said, the wooden board separating the golden inside and the golden outside never goes away. Which means that we're not finished until literally our last breath. And not only is that true, because the beauty of a person, but it's also an aspect of the difficulty of the human condition is that we are constantly in a state of becoming. And you know something? Like a house of cards, you can build and you can even build to a very high place and then you know you make one slightly wrong move and the house of cards tumbles down. The difficulty in being in a constant state of becoming is that you can also unwind. Because we are unstable compounds. Human beings are unstable compounds. And again, that locks into the difficulty of what it means to be a person. We rise and we fall. And we were created that way but then we rise again. I mean, you know, it's really endlessly deep that the Jewish people are compared to the moon as opposed to the sun. The sun is this steady, this steady state kind of thing. And by the way, it's, the sun is always shining full blast somewhere in the world. Maybe you don't see the sun, but it's still doing its something. 100% all of the time. What's so interesting about the moon is that there's more of the moon, there's less of the moon, there's a lot of the moon, it's a full moon, now there's no moon. That's us. That's us. Which means that there is no success and there is no progress without patience. We have to be patient with each other because all of us are going through this process. And you know what? You have to be patient with yourself. And the truth is, is that if you really want to be patient with each other, probably you should start by being patient with yourself. Because a lot of times when you're impatient with another person, 
It's a reflection of your lack of patience with yourself. I don't know how I started doing this, but I'm so happy that it happened to me. But whenever I look at another person with a, in a critical way, I hear a voice in my head that says, you do the same thing. And oftentimes my first reaction is almost like an angry, no, I don't. And then as soon as I think about it for a period of time, I can either find an instance where I identically did that or I basically more or less did that. Every time. You know, I learned from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rebbe Nachman of Breslov something so intense. He said, when do you begin to hate after you make a mistake? What a searing, searing, searing insight into human nature. When we make a mistake, there's inner turmoil. And oftentimes we can't reconcile the fact that we made this mistake. And because we can't resolve it, we project it out. And how does it manifest in, 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 how does it manifest in the world? It manifests as hate. But it's our own brokenness reflecting itself in a very dysfunctional way. So we looked at it from the we looked at it from the Jacob from the Jacob side, the fact that he's in this costume. I'll add one more level, a different idea, a new idea, but within the same question, answering the same question. Why is it that Yaakov has to, so to speak, wear a costume at the time of the blessing. Why does he have to be dressed like Esau? So here's a very different answer. Yaakov is not just a quiet guy who's a great scholar and a great holy person. And that's an understatement. We say that he was like, like Adam Arishon, like, a, like, like the most perfected person, Yaakov. That he was the culmination of Avraham and Yitzchak. So he wasn't just the person who dwelled in tents. Yaakov Avinu was a very, very capable statesman. Yaakov Avinu was also a warrior. He was also a master strategist. And so when he received the blessing from his father Yitzchak, it was important that he manifest all aspects of himself. In other words, it's not just that he was dressing up like Esav. He had many of those quote-unquote Esav qualities within him for the good. And those had to be part of the blessing as well. In other words, all of Yaakov had to show up to be blessed. And that's why, that's why he had to have that component as well. Now, along those lines, let's extend that even one step further. Yaakov had to represent all of humanity. While this is a unique blessing coming down for the Jewish people, nonetheless, the Jewish people are blessed to be a light unto the nations. And so this blessing ultimately is going to filter out to all peoples. 
And so Yaakov Avinu at that moment of the blessing had to represent all of humanity. And I'll give you a, a more drilled down example of what I mean by that. Reb Shlomo told me one time that the Mashiach, the Jewish Mashiach, has a very interesting lineage. Not, not only is he going to be Jewish and meet all of the checkpoints that the Rambam lists in Hilchos, the laws of kings, He'll gather in the Jewish people to the land of Israel. He'll build the base of Migdash. He'll fight the wars of Hashem. There are many. He'll be a descendant, not just of King David, but King David through his, his son Shlomo Melech, King, King Solomon. All, all of these things will be in place. Nonetheless, the Jewish Messiah will also be descended from Moab, from Lot, and through the incident between Yehuda and Tamar. So, so, so the, Jew, the Jewish Messiah will have in his bloodlines all of the people of the world, representing all of the spiritual levels of the world, not just the holy people of the world. But remember, between the, the union of Lod and his daughters, producing Moab, which produces Rus, who's the great-grandmother of King David, all spiritual levels. So the Mashiach will represent all of humanity as well. He'll be Jewish, but he'll represent all of humanity. And so in this way, I think that it's interesting that Yaakov Avinu is standing as Esav simultaneously because this blessing is going to all of humanity as well. It's another way of looking at it why he had to be dressed in this particular way. Okay, let's explore another aspect of this incident, of this blessing. We'll ask a similar question, but we're going to apply it to Yitzchak now, to Isaac. Why did it have to be, remember Isaac was physically blind, so he couldn't see he couldn't see who he was blessing. Which means he didn't know who he was blessing at the time that he was giving the blessing. He didn't see the person and he didn't know the person because he thought it was going to Esau, but it was really going to Yaakov. Now again, if Hashem already knew that the blessing was going to go from Yitzchak to Yaakov, why did it have to go in a way where the blessing was coming from someone who didn't know who he was blessing. Wouldn't it make sense that this blessing, which is altering the course of human affairs and human history, should be given in a way that the person who's giving the blessing should be knowledgeable of what he's doing at the moment? So we have a, a very deep answer to address this. And this, believe it or not, will apply to us in our daily lives but let's get to it. So, so where does everything go wrong in terms of humanity? Right? When Adam and Chava, when Adam and Eve eat from the tree of knowledge. By the way, just so you know, the Jewish people have no problem with knowledge. We're, we're the people of the book. We, we love knowledge. 
But what's so interesting is the, the full name of the tree is the Eitzadas Tovara, the, the tree of knowledge of good and bad. Now, good and bad sounds pretty absolute, but the Rambam tells us that there's actually a greater contrast than good and bad. There's true and false. That before we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and bad, there was true and false. In other words, we had absolute clarity. Good and bad, as extreme as those two terms sound, are actually relativistic. Meaning to say, what's good for me may not be good for you. And what's bad for you might not be bad for me. So good and bad actually goes into this gray area as opposed to true and false, which are black and white. Okay. When we ate from the tree of knowledge, we became prisoners, so to speak, and we shrank reality down in a way where reality corresponded, or our knowledge of reality corresponded to our ability to rationally grasp it. In other words, we only understood that which we could understand when it went beyond our ability to understand. In other words, there's limits to what even the most brilliant genius thinker has. Like to give you one easy example, Einstein was never able to solve the unified field theory which was his goal. There's gravitational laws which apply to large objects like planets and galaxies, but also on the subatomic level as well. And theoretically, all the laws of gravity should be unified. There should be this unified field theory. And yet, he was never able to discover the unified field theory. So here's just one example of Einstein, who's perhaps our greatest intellect, met an intellectual challenge that he wasn't able to overcome. So how much more so for the rest of us? And really, it shouldn't be so alarming because God is infinite and we are finite. Even though we're capable of grasping wildly complex things, at a certain point, there's a ceiling to what we are able to understand just by virtue of the fact that God is infinite and we are finite. Now, I think that it's interesting that if you look at contemporary society, I think that there are two groups in this particular area. There is a group of people who feel as though we don't have the answer to every one of our questions yet. However, we are on the road to answering every question that we have. And eventually, we will solve every unanswered question. Like that is a real school of thought in the world. And you'll find that especially in academia. There's another field of thought, which I just laid out, which I would put myself in for sure which is that we will never understand everything. How can we understand everything if God is infinite and our brains ultimately are finite? 
It's never going to happen. Therefore, if that's true, and I believe very strongly that that is true, then one of the premises of God is that you will never fully understand him. In other words, many people feel as though it's sort of like you introduce the idea of God to them, and they're somewhat open-minded. And they'll say to you from a good place, if you can fully explain it to me, then I will do it. If you can't fully explain it to me, I'm not going to do anything that doesn't make complete sense. But my friend, it will never make full sense to you because God is infinite and you are finite. <laughs> the premise of God is that you will never fully understand him. That's a premise. Until people really embrace that. And that's why I always like to quote the, this teaching from the Kutzke Rebbe, because I think it's so phenomenal. He said, I would never worship a God I understood. <laughs> because if you completely understand God, then you're also God. So who needs God? So everything goes south, so to speak. Everything unwinds in terms of creation when we eat from the tree of knowledge of good and bad. And again, we're answering the question, why is it that Yitzchak, that God wanted Yitzchak not to know whom he was giving the bracha to? Why did it have to come that way? And the answer I heard, I haven't got a source for you, but the answer that I heard, which I think is so deep, so wild really, is that this blessing was coming from a place above the tree of knowledge. And that's why he had to not know, because he was transcending all of the limitations of creation. And he was tapping into the infinite source and bringing down this infinite blessing from the infinite source, which means that he had to go and transcend every aspect of his own intellect. That's awesome. So the infinite blessing comes down to the Jewish people in this way, dafka, precisely from a place of not knowing. You know, I'll tell you something on a personal level. Some, some people, and understandably, I'm not making a judgment here, I'm just sharing with you my own personal experience. Sometimes you're, you know, you know God willing, whoever wants to have children should be blessed with children. When my wife was pregnant, we, we didn't want to know the gender. Some people race to know the gender. And again, I'm not making any judgments. It's, you know, whatever you like. So, by the way, the Talmud says that the gender is not determined until the 40th day after conception. And that actually, believe it or not, Talmudically, is the definition of a, uh, a prayer that doesn't have any effect if you daven for the gender of the child after the 40th day. Because <laughs> at that point, it's already been determined. So, so during the first days, if you have a strong preference for whatever reason, that's the time to pray. After that, as, as we say, the ship has sailed. Anyway, I didn't want to know the gender. And I don't know, there were some complications that, that we were having. Thank God every everything worked out, but 
So we had to go for some tests, and then during the tests, even though it was like the sixth month or something like that, the, the person said, told us the gender. And here's the point, this is why I'm trying to tell you. I noticed that I prayed for the child differently at that point. Because I knew that it was going to be this gender and not that gender, and therefore it seemed like there's certain types of blessings that felt more appropriate for, for one rather than the other. And I changed the way that I was blessing, if you will. I'm, I'm interchanging praying and blessing right now, but they're kind of one and the same. And so what's so interesting about not knowing, Yitzchak not knowing, was that even if he was coming from a good place and trying to laser point the blessing, he couldn't do it. He couldn't subdivide the blessing because he was coming from a place of not knowing, which means that the entirety of the blessing was unfiltered in the best way. Okay, so this idea of Yitzchak going beyond is, believe it or not, relevant in our own lives. On Purim, we have a mitzvah called Adlo Yada, which means to go beyond what you can reach rationally. We do that by drinking wine, because wine was what Esther served at the party where Haman becomes defeated. How do we know that we've reached this place called beyond? So one of the halachic ways is you say the following words to yourself. Baruch Mordechai Aror Haman. Blessed is Mordechai and cursed is Haman. When you get to the place of you've drunk so much wine where you say Baruch Haman, <laughs> meaning to say blessed is Haman, then you know you've reached the place where you've gone beyond this rational consciousness. Now, what is the idea there? The idea is ultimately, like we say, this world is very confusing. But one of the absolute foundational beliefs of Judaism is that God is good, even if we don't understand him, even if there's suffering, that God is good, and that it will all ultimately be revealed and make sense to us. And so when we say Baruch Haman, blessed is Haman, we're reaching that place where we're beyond all of our rational faculties, where we say God is good even in the places that I can't grasp it. And then we become like Yitzchak, and we channel that blessing which is beyond our rational faculties into this world by blessing everything, by blessing all of creation, even the parts that I don't understand. Not to say that we empower the wicked people by blessing them. That's not what's going on there. It's that we're reaching a place where we're able to summon, similar to, to Yitzchak, that place which is beyond and to bring that light which is beyond into this world. So what about Esav? Esav finds out that, that he doesn't have the blessing. 
By the way, I haven't got a good answer for this, but I, I give you this as a, a thought question. You can come up with an answer on your own, okay? And, you know, but it's a good one to think about. Yitzchak sends Esav off to hunt and, and to bring him back his favorite food. Now, why? Is it because Isaac was hungry? No, because we have, a, we have a rule that in order to summon prophecy, because he gave the blessing to Yaakov from a place of prophecy, in order to summon prophecy, you have to be in a state of simcha, a state of happiness. And so Yitzchak wanted his favorite foods in order to get into that place of joy. And how much more joy that his own son that he was going to bless was bringing him his favorite food. So that was just an element of, of getting into this place of prophecy. Well, while he's off hunting, that's where Yaakov comes in. And Rivka, Yitzchak's wife, and Yaakov and Esav's mother, is now behind the scenes orchestrating it that Yaakov is going to get the blessing. And she tells Yaakov, take two goats and bring them to me. And it's from these two goats that this delicious stew is going to be made for Yaakov's father, Yitzchak. Now, isn't it interesting that on Yom Kippur, one of the main avodas, one of the primary things that we do is we take two goats. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinating. I wish I had a great answer for you, but I'm still thinking of that. <laughs> but somehow, somehow this day was a little bit like Yom Kippur, right? That the blessing was coming down. You know, Yom Kippur, the Talmud says Yom Kippur is, if you take the gematria, this is now a gematria from the Talmud itself. If you take the gematria for the word hasatan, which means basically the heavenly accuser, you hear the, the, the word Satan in there, Hasatan. So the heavenly accuser. And remember, in Judaism, there is not God and the devil. It's not two powers wrestling over the destiny of the world. There's only God, right? Nonetheless, God tests us in order to take the light that's inside of us and to bring it out. That's part of the world still being created. Right? We're getting to that place by filling the world with more and more light. But how do we fill it with more and more light? By confronting obstacles and overcoming them. So that's the role of the, the one who opposes us. Now the Gomorrah says that these three reference points of opposition are the Yetzahara, the Satan, and the Malach HaMavis, the angel of death, right? Or as Reb Shlomo might say, the angel of not so much. <laughs> he didn't like to say that word. That it's all one spectrum of energy. The Yetzirah 
opposes us on the inside, right? Kind of confuses our thinking a little bit. The Malach Amavis, that angel, opposes our flesh. And the Satan opposes us and accuses us from heaven. So what Rashi brings, the Yetzirah is actually the angel of Esav. And what's so interesting is this word Hasatan is Gematria 364. And so the rabbis say there's 365 days in the year and this word which means heavenly opposition is 364 which means there's one day of the year without any opposition and that's Yom Kippur. Now if we say that the angel of Esav is the Yetzirah, that means there is no opposition from Esav on this day. And so Rivka says, bring two goats, which is like Yom Kippur, where there will be no opposition from the Yetzirah, from Esav. And you will be successful in getting the blessing. By the way, that just came to me this moment. So, so that's in all of your schus, because how can, how can it be that I'm giving you a question and not giving you an answer? So I still invite you to come up with your own answer, but at least, at least I did my job. <laughs> For now, anyway, you know, Torah is infinite, so we can always make that answer better. But anyway, so, so Ace of... The rabbis say, Esav had one mitzvah that he was awesome at, and he wasn't just good at it, he was probably the greatest ever at it. Which is, wow, like really? And the answer is yes, and actually it becomes even more amazing, because the rabbis say that the hardest mitzvah in the entire Torah is kibbutz aim, making your parents happy. Right? Honoring them. And so, so Esav not only did the hardest mitzvah in the entire Torah, but he did it better than anyone ever did it. With his father, at least. That, that's pretty incredible. And that's why they say that in Moras HaMach in the cave of the patriarchs, where Adam and Eve were buried, and Abraham and Sarah, and Isaac and Rivka, and Yaakov and Leah, there's also the head of Esav. Like that's a whole story in itself, but nonetheless, the head of Esav is in there. So, so what merit did he have? And they say that he had the merit of this, this great mitzvah of, of honoring his father. Now, how did he honor his father? And, and there are different ways that he did it, and we'll never know the full extent of it, because if he was that good at it, that means there's a lot more to it than we'll ever know about, right? Well, one of the ways that he did it was that he had this incredible garment. And this garment came from the Garden of Eden that the Medrash said that Adam Arishon had. And then Cain got it. And then Nimrod got it from Cain. And then Esav killed Nimrod, who was like the greatest warrior in the world. And Esav took possession of this incredible garment. And that Esav kept this garment in the closet of Rivka, of his mother, 
and when he would administer to his father, he would put on this garment as one of the ways of honoring his father. Now I heard this question from the rabbi of the Palm Beach Synagogue in Florida, and I was like jealous of this question because I wished I could have thought of this question when I heard it. I, I thought it was so great. If Isaac was physically blind, what was the purpose of him putting on this garment if he couldn't see it? I love that question. I love that question. And the answer that he gave was because maybe Yitzhak didn't know, but Esav knew. Esav knew that he was wearing Esav knew that he was serving in his, his father in the utmost way that he was capable of doing. Now, I'll tell you why that teaching resonates with me so much. Because I would say most of us, when we ask ourselves, how am I doing? The way we do it is that we look at all the people around us and we ask ourselves, how do they think I'm doing? However they think I'm doing, that's how I'm doing. But there's another way to decide how you're doing. How do you think you're doing? And you know what the answer is? You're probably doing fine. <laughs> Unless you're actively trying to harm people with intention, you're okay. You're doing good. And guess what? That answer to that question, how am I doing, you get to answer that. You get to answer that for yourself. I remember my father used to tell this story when I was growing up. I think it's a true story about some American tycoon from, you know, the early days of the past century. They, they noticed that he was sitting not at the head of the table. And someone asked him, why aren't you sitting at the head of the table? And he said, wherever I sit is the head of the table. That's what I'm talking about. Asim knew. That was enough. Right? There's a, a Seinfeld. Here's the, like the opposite of, here's the opposite of it. There was a Seinfeld episode that I always liked. I'm sure everyone's seen this, which is, they have tip jars in, you know, everywhere they have tip jars, basically. But in this particular episode, it was in an ice cream place. And so George, who's like, I guess, a pretty stingy guy, uh, like wants to like seem very important. And he, he wants to put a tip for the person who's behind the counter who's making him ice cream. I don't know if it was a girl he was trying to impress. I, I don't remember the details, but he, he wanted to be like a big, big man and, you know, put a tip in. And right as he's putting the tip in, she turns around. <laughs> so she doesn't see him putting the tip in. And now he feels like the only reason why he put the tip in is so that she could see him put the tip in. So, so what he does is he wants to do it again so that this time she sees, but this time she sees him reaching into the, the tip jar and it looks like he's stealing her money. 
And so it has a complete opposite effect. And, you know, it goes from there in classic Seinfeld fashion, you know? Anyway, one of the things that we daven in the morning prayers is that, I'll read the, the words to you. It says, Le'olam yehe Adam, yirei shamayim v'seter u'begalui, and it means always let a person be God-fearing privately and publicly. You know, when you're God-fearing publicly, as Reb Shlomo might say, it's cute and it's sweet. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes we're doing it for each other. But when you're alone in your house, or when you're alone in your thoughts, and you're being God-fearing, that's, that's the real deal. That's the real deal. Because if you can be that person, then nothing can crush you. I remember hearing that Anatoly Sharansky, I had the privilege of hearing him. He was one of the people that spoke at the march in Washington. They put him in solitary confinement. And he said, you know, they think that they can, they think that they can imprison me, but they can't imprison my thoughts. They can't take away my Jewishness. They can't take away my belief in God. And so I'm free. Even as I'm sitting here in prison, I'm free. I'll give you another example. Where did he get that from, right? I don't know, but I'll tell you where we all get it from. You wanna hear something interesting? Do you know where the, where, where the first Pesach Seder was held? Paro says, okay, this is after 400 years, maybe? He says, okay, you can go. He said it that night at midnight after the death of the firstborn, that plague, the 10th plague, which was at midnight, at precisely midnight. He chased down the Jewish people and he said, get out of here, just everybody go. And our response was, we're not leaving like thieves in the night. Tomorrow morning we'll go. And so we had our first Pesach Seder as free people, you ready for this? In Egypt. It's not like, you know, they said, well, let's be wise about this. Let's like set up one foot outside the border of Egypt and then we'll have our meal of freedom one foot outside. No, we had it inside, inside Egypt. Because if you're free inside, if your spirit is free, if your soul is free, then you could be locked in chains and you're still a free person. So let's, let's have that inner strength. Let's have that inner strength. The inner strength to be able to express on the outside who we are on the inside and not to be afraid of whatever the world is thinking right now. Because all are blind 
until God opens up their eyes. I heard that if you're on the same side as Iran and Russia and North Korea right now, maybe you're on the wrong side. The idea that liberal, brilliant college students can align themselves with murderers and rapists and be outraged at those people who are standing up to murderers and rapists. It's, it's, it's a very confused world right now. It's a very confused world right now. But we don't have to react to the lack of clarity. Let's just continue to love each other, to be the best people that we can be, and to shine that light into the world. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for a new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.